Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. If you have been a longtime listener, thank you for joining me once again. If you are a first-time listener, I welcome you, well, for the first time in our study on the book of Revelation. If you need to catch up, you can just go to my website at joholcraft.org. That's J-O-E. H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T dot org. You can just hit the Listen Now link, and it will take you to the archives, and you can just scroll through all of our programming here, just not on the book of Revelation, but all of the topics that we have treated over the years. It is by your request that I have hit the pause button on all of my regular themed topics to study the book of Revelation, to go through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and hopefully Now that we are in program number nine, you are getting a deeper understanding of what this book is all about. For me, this has been very beneficial to be going back into the book of Revelation with the commentaries, the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, Scott Hahn's work, The Lamb's Supper, and uh, most especially Michael Barber's work coming soon, going through that. So with that, let us get back into the book itself. Yesterday, we left off with the martyrdom account of St. Polycarp of Smyrna. And before we get into uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, I did want to make a comment about that account. You know, to read the words like St. Polycarp coming into the city on a donkey, this quantity of blood gushing forth from his side as he died. You know, there are so many similarities to just not St. Polycarp's death and, and our Lord's But as we read in the Acts of the Martyrs, many of those who died in the name of Jesus Christ did so uh, in a very similar way to that of Christ. And this is why we look at martyrdom, mindful that the word martyr comes from the Greek martyria, which literally means uh, to witness, right? That uh, it is a gift, that martyrdom is a gift, a gift insofar as it imitates Christ most profoundly. Benedict XVI once said that in the end, the only one lasting proof of the existence of God is to lay down your life for God. And there's much to be said about that point. Okay, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We are going through these letters. We first went through the letter to Ephesus and then the letter to Smyrna. And it was that second letter to Smyrna that had us hitting the pause button, right, and talking about St. Polycarp of Smyrna. We are now on this third letter, this letter to Pergamum. Okay, so chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. Mm. It was the ancient writer Pliny who said that Pergamum was the most famous place of Asia. <laughs> like the other seven cities mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 to 3, Pergamum was a place where the Roman religion thrived. And this would be important to note because certainly it helps us understand what our Lord is saying here. In fact, it was a historical center since it was there that the first temple was erected for emperor worship. Here the emperor Augustus was worshipped as a god. Refusal to worship Caesar was a crime of high treason. Uh, the early martyr Antipas mentioned here may have been killed there because as a Christian he could not obey this law. Other pagan temples were located in Pergamum as well. For example, the city had a famous temple dedicated to Zeus. Christ's description of the city as the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells is probably related to the fact that so many gods worshipped there. This should not surprise us. Now, once again here, we have the Nicolaitans mentioned. Uh, they are compared to those who follow Balaam and Balak, who entice the Israelites to sexual sins in the book of Numbers. If you were to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 31, verses 15 to 16, this is what you read about. I mean, my dear friends, you cannot possibly begin to interpret the book of Revelation without the backdrop of the Old Testament. It would be literally impossible. So much of what this vision is about is aided by a deeper understanding of the Old Testament. This is why we reference Numbers. This is why we reference Isaiah. This is why we reference so many of the Old Testament books, because it illuminates the deeper sense. And let me add this. When you're reading the New Testament, and you go down to the footnotes, and you see an Old Testament passage, that should be a clue for you to stop what you're reading to read the Old Testament passage, and not just read the one verse, but get the context, appreciate what's going on, and that will, in fact, illuminate, bring light to the New Testament text. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, can really only be understood with a deeper understanding of what's going on in, in just not Numbers 31, but also Numbers 25, as we gain an appreciation to what our Lord's message is here, huh? Jesus is warning the Christians of Pergamum not to be like the generation of Israelites who fell into sin just before they entered into the promised land. These Christians are at the threshold of the new heavens and the new earth, which John is about to see come down from heaven. Christ is urging them to hold fast to their faith in order to conquer so that unlike the Israelites, they may enter the true promised land without falling into sin. So like Christ's words to the other churches, the temptations to which the Nicolaitans fell are ones to which we often succumb, though maybe not in the same way, 
but still succumbed to, huh? The people of Pergamum lived in time and place where pagan idolatry and immorality dominated the culture. The temples were not easy to avoid. Most of the economy of this city had to do with these pagan temples. The city's life revolved around them. The Nicolaitans said, it's okay, you can compromise. You have to live here after all. Jesus understands. How often today do Christians justify their involvement in sin because it is culturally acceptable? How often do you justify your involvement in sin because it is culturally acceptable? I have to ask myself that same question every day. How often do I justify my involvement in sin because it is culturally acceptable? It is all around us, my friends, and it is hard to avoid. Renunciation of sin is usually viewed as weird or maybe outdated. Christ's words are an important reminder to us that we must be, well, holy, set apart. Remember that the word holiness literally translates as to be set apart. Just because everyone else is doing it has never been an acceptable excuse. We often hear it said we are to be a sign of contradiction. This is true, but I would say take it one step further. We are to be a walking perpetual contradiction to this cultural acceptance. I touched upon it uh, yesterday. This is what I was after when I was talking about persecution. You very well may be called names. You very well may be pushed to the margins. But if it is in the name of Jesus Christ, again, this is what Christ promised. This is what Christ promised. Now, these verses reference idolatry quite a bit. And so the question is posed. I mean, is idolatry of this kind obsolete? I mean, modern people do not generally worship stones and statues as gods. And for Protestants out there, um, understand that we don't worship statues. No. <laughs> if you see a Catholic praying before a statue, it is the same reason why we might go to a picture of a loved one. And if we're asking them for prayers, it's no more, no less. So yeah, modern people today do not generally worship stones and statues as gods. But that does not mean they are immune from idol worship. An idol or false god is anything or anyone to whom we give devotion, trust, or obedience that belongs to God alone. Now, with that definition in mind, it is possible to identify some of the false gods in contemporary life and to consider which idols tempt us. Certainly, off the top, we ought to talk about money, sex, and power because they have long functioned as idols of our contemporary culture and they remain rivals for our hearts. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon meaning money, yes, but I've talked about this before. The Hebrew there actually is better defined as trust in money. Trust in money, which is significant because what verses come after that? Well, his sermon on trust. Sometimes people idolize money because of excessive desire, referred to in Scripture, of course, as greed or covetousness for things that they do not possess. Often, however, people pursue wealth out of anxiety to secure their future. The idol of lust 
with all its seductive and addictive power, is a distortion of natural God-given desires and certainly is common in our sex-to-craze society. The pursuit of power expresses itself in politics and business, in nations and families, and regrettably, sometimes even in our own churches. Often, the compulsion to be in control is rooted in fear. We also battle this, this addiction to prestige. The desire for fame shapes our entire lives. We live in a paparazzi culture, an oh to be in the limelight, an oh to be noticed. This is what we live for. This is, this is our idol. What's more, it is all too easy to place the approval of peers above the loyalty due to God. It's interesting. Jesus attributed the Jewish religious scholars' inability to believe in him to their accepting praise from one another, right? Rather than seeking the praise that comes from God alone. Go to John chapter 5, verse 44. This is the very thing that he's talking about. St. Augustine viewed idolatry as rooted in a disordered love of self, undermining the love of God. This is expressed how? But by absorption with one's career, absorption with one's personality, absorption with one's talents, appearance, exercise, diet, okay? Idols are everywhere. For some, sports is the idol. It dominates our time and thought. You know, I, I just mentioned appearance. We often tie vanity with the word appearance. But as I use the word time, I'm made to reflect upon something here. Remember that the word vanity coming from the Latin vanus literally means emptiness, or even better translated as a waste of time. When the author of Ecclesiastes is, is looking back and he says, Woe vanity. What he's doing is looking back on how he wasted time. And is some of it based upon appearance? Yeah, but it was everything. How he found himself literally wasting time away. You know, we use the phrase today, oh, I'm just killing time. Oh, brothers and sisters, please don't use that phrase. Because time is a gift. It is to never be wasted or killed. Let us be careful what we are saying, huh? Maybe you're someone who, who seeks to fill the God-shaped vacuum inside with food, alcohol, drugs, media, or some other form of entertainment. Any good thing from God, such as uh, the people we love, family life, a group we belong to, the Bible, or even the church itself, can subtly take the place of God in our lives as that which we love first or rely on most. My dear friends, Obviously, when you're talking about sacred scripture and or uh, the church, these should be a means to an end, a way in which we fall deeper in love with God that we might love God alone more fervently. The point is this. Let everything that you do point to God. And if there's anything that is taking the place of God, remove that false God or translated in the Hebrew, strange God. If you find the word strange, strange, next time you see someone paying too much attention to any one thing, A, 
remind yourself that you yourself are too attached to something. But B, take a look at what you see. It's probably going to look strange to you. Why? Because it's a strange God. We all have our strange gods. I'm thinking of the last time that I was at a restaurant. I walked into the restaurant and I saw a family of about eight and they're all staring at their iPhones. It looked strange to me, but then I had to challenge myself. Has anyone come into a restaurant and found me among others staring at iPhones? Or, or maybe look at someone rooting for their team. Remember that the word fan is just short for fanatic. If you're not a sports fan, that probably looks strange to you. Why? Because maybe it's a strange God. Just as the Christians in Pergamum were tempted to combine the worship of God with service to idols, so it is for us today. God's word remains the same. You shall not have other gods beside me. God wants our undivided devotion, not only because he desires an intimate relationship with us, but also for our own good, that in the end we are made to see everything else ultimately disappoints or debases us. So important to reflect upon this whole idea of idolatry. All right, returning to these verses here. How about verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17? And the hidden manna, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. The hidden manna, is most likely a reference to the Eucharist once again, right? In the fourth gospel, John records the famous bread of life discourse in which Jesus says he is the true manna. What do we read in John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51? I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now the manna was a symbol in the New Testament and in the writings of the early fathers of the Eucharist. In fact, Eucharistic imagery permeates many of the seven letters. For example, if you were to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Christ says what? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, the hidden man is Christ, therefore, who is hidden in the real presence of the Eucharist. How about the white stone? Well, the white stone can be linked with the stone connected to the appearance of the manna in the Old Testament. Once again, your Bibles probably have footnoted Numbers chapter 11, verse 7, and Exodus chapter 16, verse 31. Why is this important? Because this was the stone that was connected to the appearance of the manna. In fact, a, a tradition in rabbinic literature stated that these stones fell from heaven with the manna. Now, what's important for us to see is that the stone was also found in the Garden of Eden. The manna, therefore, represented Israel's calling to reverse the disobedience of Adam. It's always important, as we're reading the book of Revelation, to appreciate God as an author, right? Every good author comes full circle. That is to say, 
the last chapter is going to be a reflection of the first chapter. The author comes full circle. God does the same in the Bible. When you read the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation closely, you see this. The imagery is everywhere. And again, as I've already talked about in our opening programs, we have already seen this, and we see it again here. And what are we to draw from this? That again, the manna represented Israel's calling to reverse the disobedience of Adam. The reference to it here, like the reference to the tree of life, certainly points to what? But the new creation that Christ inaugurates in the Eucharist. Every time we receive the new manna, we become a new creation in Christ. Every time we receive the Eucharist, we become a new creation in Christ. Why in uh, the first few programs did I talk about the importance of the liturgy? Well, you're seeing it now. And you cannot fully understand these verses without an understanding of what we're talking about right now because clearly John wants us to see this. We can add that the writing on the white stone may be an allusion to the stones worn by the high priest, which had the names of Israel written on them. If you're to go to Exodus chapter 28, verses 9 to 12, that's what we read. As for the reference to a new name, certainly John here borrows his imagery from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, which speaks of the restoration of Israel in terms of this new exodus. What do we read there? And you will be called by a new name. My dear friends, Jesus is the new Moses, and through him, God's people will be restored. Okay, how about this fourth letter, the letter to Thyatira? This brings us to chapter 2, verse 18, and I'll read verses 18 to 23. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings. Here again, you have this call to repent. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So, once again, this city, Thyatira, was one of the leading centers for trade in the Asia Minor. And because of this, it had an extraordinary number of what we would call trade guilds. Each guild had a god whom all the members were required to worship. This worship often, if not all the time, included immoral sexual conduct and the eating of food offered to idols. Uh, certainly practices that were condemned by the apostles themselves at the Council of Jerusalem. If you were to go to Acts chapter 15, there is where you read about the Council of Jerusalem. Now this situation posed a difficult dilemma for converts who supported their families by working for these guilds. I mean, we have to appreciate what these early Christians must have been going through. 
And so this is why we pause to consider some of these things. Jesus recognizes that the church at Thyatira is continuing to grow and to do better works. However, apparently, someone in the community there was leading Christians into the sins of immorality and the eating of unclean food, quite possibly in the worship of the guild gods already mentioned. This person is compared to who? Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. We read about them in 1 Kings 21. Of course, their story is tied to the narrative of Elijah. And not to get into all that right now, but significant that he compares this person with Jezebel. There's certainly a play on words here in our Lord's warning to these Christians. As one interpreter explains it, with grim humor, Jesus is saying, do you want to get into bed? Very well, here's a deathbed for you. So there you go. Our Lord's self-description as the one who searches the mind and heart and who will give to each of you as your works deserve evokes what the Lord says in Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the mind and try the heart to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. So once again here, my friends, John implicitly underscores the fact that Jesus is the Lord and we are made to see this for what it is. Jesus, my friends, knows our inner self, knowing the state of our heart. Certainly the warning of Jesus remains applicable today. I mean, sometimes do we not refuse to detach ourselves from certain sins? What were we just talking about as it relates to idolatry? What's often tragic about it is the way in which we try to justify ourselves by multiplying works that have real no life in them. We try to bargain with God, thinking we can continue to sin as long as we pay God his due. This is a perversion of the gospel and a distorted vision of love. What is love? Love is to will the good of the other. To will the good of the other. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we are called to give of ourselves totally to him, holding nothing back. Others may see our works and marvel, but that is neither here or there. It is about what Jesus sees. And above all else, he sees and knows our heart. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift and opportunity to reflect into this wonderful and very rich book that discloses the great mystery of your love. We continue to ask that we might be enriched in our study of it and that we might go forth and give glory to you in all that we do. We pray these things through the intercession of Mary as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.